big change happened in my life back in uh, 2009. I had grown up in Montgomery uh, for most of my life. I uh, was going to Aurora Christian, so uh, Bill, we were at your stomping grounds um, in those days and spent a lot of time there. In 2009, uh, God decided to uh, shake things up for the Anderson family a little bit, and we moved out of Montgomery. You would have thought in how I dealt with it that it was like moving across the country, uh, though it wasn't, and we moved out to Newark, and uh, we left Aurora Christian. We were getting ready to go to Newark High School, and I remember just so vividly um, the first day of school. Uh, here I am. I grew up in a, in a Christian school, and I'm getting ready for my first day in a public high school. And I really had no idea what to expect, but we were in Newark now, and a uh, bright sunny morning just like this uh, in August, and my brother and I are driving our 1997 Buick Century down Newark Road, uh, getting ready on our way into school, and I remember turning to my brother in the passenger seat and said, Brett, you know, we're, we're at a new place now, and if we're going to fit in out here, I think we're going to have to learn to do some things differently. And so we were talking about it, and I said, the first thing, I think we're going to have to learn how to like country music. You know, I didn't know the first thing about country music, um, but I just knew everybody ripped on it uh, where I was kind of where I'd grown up. And so that morning we turned on the country radio station and listened to country music, and uh, I don't think we ever turned it off. Uh, so for those of you, number one, who are skeptical of country music, maybe give it a shot. Uh, number two, for whatever reason, in my junior mind, I thought and we thought that uh, Understanding and appreciating country music was our ticket to fitting into this new country town and being a part of Newark High School. And uh, we learned over the next couple of years as I, I went to school there that being part of that community was about much more than just the music that we listened to. So it's funny, you know, as I look back on it, how, how naive my thinking was at the time. But there was much that would go into being involved in a small community. That we, we know this, right? We live in another small uh, rural country community and the communities surrounding us. And, and it means something to be part of this. And what Paul is going to draw our attention to today is that as we go about living in the new community that he's talking about, the community of the church, uh, there is more to what it means to be involved and belong in that community than just the music that we listen to. Uh, for some, maybe when in coming to faith in Christ, it's very, uh, very driven by, by more surface level things like that. Like, uh, well, maybe I should change what's on the radio station. Maybe I should change uh, just what I'm, I'm reading or, or stuff like that. But as Paul's going to get into it, there's a much deeper sense of what it means to belong to this new community. If you were here last week, now we started talking about this new life. In the ESV, that's the heading uh, right before verse 17, the new life. And we talked about how Paul is, is calling us to be uncommon as believers. That as we go throughout our days, we're to no longer live and walk as the Gentiles do, but we're to put on the new self and to walk and live in Christ. And uh, what we're going to be learning over the, the weeks ahead as we continue through this study is that this, this newness is an essential part of what Paul is going to, to bring about. Everything that he's going to be talking. As a matter of fact, if we don't grasp this concept of our new self, who we are in Christ, then the things that Paul is going to talk about are nothing more than just, you know, try to be a better person. 
but he bases it in this transformation of who we are. Not just in, hey guys, just try to do things a little bit differently. Just try to think a little bit differently about the world. It's like, no, you have been changed. Now you're going to live in this change. You're going to live out this transformed life. And we're going to see over the weeks ahead that this new transformation that takes place in each of us is going to have widespread effects, ought to have widespread effects in each of our lives. In chapter 5, uh, we're going to learn that it's going to have implications for our interactions with our surrounding culture, right? In verses 1 through 21 that we're going to talk about next week. Verses 22 uh, to about 33, we're going to learn that it's going to have implications for our marriages and our relationships uh, with our spouse. Uh, Following that, we're going to learn about parenting. It's going to have implications for our parenting. And by the way, our being parented for those who that is very much still applicable for. Uh, How do we go about doing that in this new community? How how is it going to impact our vocations and our jobs? And uh, what's it going to mean for our day to day? He's going to get into all of these things, but all of them are rooted in this transformation. So Paul's emphasis is we're going to get very practical, right? He's going to say, this is how you live it out. We can be inclined to hear that and go to the place of, well, we just need to try to be better people. That we just apply it to our morality and we, we, we disconnect the transformation of who we are in Christ from what Paul's talking about. So we need to keep that in perspective as we flesh some of these things out and talk about this is not just, guys, work harder, try harder. This is be who you are now in Christ. Fulfill the calling, live worthy of the calling that's been placed on your life. And so if you would, uh, let's look at our passage this morning as Paul's going to kind of kick this off, uh, talking about our relationships even with each other here in this new community, the church. Paul writes this, starting verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear." And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Would you uh, go to the Lord and word of prayer with me as as we turn our attention here this morning? Our Father, we we come before you and I pray, Lord, that as we talk through this passage and how it it has impact in our relationships with each other in the church, in this body, this new community that you have brought us to, Lord, I pray that we would not be so naive in a sense to think that we can just pull this off on our own. Lord, I pray I pray that as we wrestle with these things, as we seek to apply these things and be obedient to your word, that we would be driven by the transformation of what you have done in our life, who, who you have called us to be, whose we are. Lord, that we would not just work harder, try harder, but that, 
that we would become who you have made us. We would learn daily to walk in that calling. Lord, so give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Give us strength to be obedient to your word and to honor you, even now as we uh, take some moments ahead to, to unpack this passage and, and seek of how we can bring its application in our life. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. So our, our focus this morning is, is primarily going to be on our relationships within the church, our relationship with other people. So I'm going to give you uh, just a, a little bit of a heads up. We're, we're jumping into point one right now if you're following along in your uh, bulletin. And I'm going to warn you that we are going to be in point one for a while. Uh, so when you're, when you're wondering, okay, we've got three more to go. Are we actually going to get out of here on time today? Our goal is that we will, at least before the last NC NCAA game this evening, uh, but we'll, we'll get out of here at some point in the next 24 hours. But no, uh, we're going to spend most of our time today talking about our relationships with others and, and what Paul is, is speaking of here, and then we'll, we will get to those other three. But I just don't want you to feel like, oh my goodness, we are going to be here literally all day. Uh, we have a plan. We're going to work through it. But Paul is, is addressing these new believers and saying, listen, guys, uh, as we live out this new life, this new creation that is within each and every one of us in Christ, it entails something in our relationship with each other. You'll notice in verse 25, he speaks of the fact that we now are members one of another. There's great significance to what Paul is calling us to, that this newness of who we are is not just so individualistic. We tend to think very individualistically about our life and about our even our engagement in the church. Like, no, this is me. This is how God has gifted me. This is how I can benefit. Paul is saying we need to restructure our thinking. We need to restructure some of our understanding of what this new life actually means. And that means that you and I, as fellow believers, are members one of another. And so this individualistic mindset that our culture kind of celebrates and our culture lifts up in society flies in opposition to what Paul is, is dictating here for the early church and what it means to do life in this new community, right? Just like uh, going to Newark did not mean I'm going to fit in just because I listen to country music. That's silly to think that, but that it, a community has expectations for how you're going to engage with the community. Uh, there's there's expectations of how we do life together. And Paul's saying it's the exact same things when it comes to the church. And so uh, earlier in the first part of chapter 4, you'll remember he's already set the table for this. We're saying, listen, each of us has been given a grace, a gift of God, not to use for selfish gain, but to actually use to serve and minister to the church. So off the get-go, Paul is already saying, this whole church community thing, this, this new body of people, this unity that we have with one another, means that we exist to serve each other, not to just be served by other people. So he's built that foundation, and now he's going to get into, in these verses that we're dealing with today, a little bit more of the, okay, what does that life look like? How do we go about, actually, what, what does the culture, if you will, of this community of believers, how should that be lived out as we do life, as we gather, as we engage in each other's life with one another? And what Paul does, in essence, is he, he speaks of four virtues 
along with uh, four vices of this, of this culture, this community. And so as we look at this, we're going to talk about uh, these four virtues and vices as we go about these things in verses 25 through 29, uh, primarily is where we see them. And each of the vices that Paul is going to speak about, they attack the community of believers, right? He's made a great big deal over the unity of the church. Jew and Gentile, you know, each of us, members, one another, uh, each of these vices is going to attack that unity, and we need to be conscious of these things. Uh, but not only do they attack the unity, they, they will also, as we'll see, they're, they're going to impact the, the culture and the community of the church. So in today's world, uh, where we see so many people uh, nowadays struggling with faith, and, and this movement that you, is the deconstruction of faith, as you listen to people's stories over and over and over again, most people don't have an issue with Jesus, do they? They got an issue with the church. They've been hurt by the church. They've been wronged by the believers. And as a result, they're saying, listen, there's something wrong with the church. And what Paul is calling us to here is, guys, as the church, there is a high calling as to how we interact with one another how we engage, what is this community supposed to be like, and how do we live in that? And, and he's going to draw this conversation out. And the first thing that we see right away that he hits on in verse 25 is, he says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So we could say this, this new community that we are part of is one that should be defined by facts, not falsehoods. Now, uh, contextually, as we look at what Paul is talking about, I think this, this works itself out in a couple of different ways. If you will, you re, we can't neglect the beginning of verse 25. Therefore, right? The, the therefore is important because this new, newness of who we are is rooted in how we have learned Christ, what we have been taught about Christ. So if you go back to last week's passage uh, for just a second, and you look in verse 20 and verse 21... But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so this newness, we are created now, as Paul wrapped up last week, putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul has characterized this old way where, where these falsehoods, right, this, this futility of thinking, and he's saying now in the renewal of our minds, we are to be like God, that we, have, we share in likeness, in character. We've been created to, to resemble Christ, and he has said truth is bound up in Christ. Jesus is truth. So it would be contrary to the calling that we have received to go about speaking falsehoods with one another as Christians. There's no place for it. There's no place for that. It's not congruent with who we have been called to be in Christ. Because lying and deceitfulness is contrary to the very nature and character of God. The father of all deception and lies is who? Satan, the, the devil, the enemy. God is truth. In him there is no lie. And if we are to resemble him, if we have been created in his likeness as believers to manifest and reflect his character, then we are to be people of truth. So when you go back to the Old Testament and you, you look at the, the Ten Commandments and right where it says, thou shalt not, 
lie being one of them. It's not that God's coming in and saying, hey, let me, uh, let me put a buzzkill on all your relationships because you can't spice it up with a little fib. You got to be honest with each other. And it's not that he's trying to do that, but the law is a reflection of his character. So if God calls us to not be deceitful and not to lie, perhaps it's because God is an honest and truthful God. So here we have been called to walk in that, that, uh, that likeness. So it would be a denial then of our new identity in Christ to consciously and intentionally speak falsehoods with one another. It's just altogether unbecoming of a Christian to be deceitful, especially within this community. There's no place for it, Paul's saying. Put away, put away falsehoods. Speak the truth with one another. So now, because of who we have been created to be in Christ, this transformation, we are obligated, Christian, obligated to speak honestly with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Really, more broadly speaking than that, we're, we're just, we're obligated to be honest in general. It's not like, oh, I'm dealing with my coworker at, at, at work who's not a believer, so I can, I can be deceitful with him. That's not. We are to be people of honesty and truth. But then what are we, what are we supposed to do with this then? How do we go about uh, dealing with this? What truth are we supposed to speak? Because if we're, we're honest with each other and we're honest with ourselves, sometimes, maybe you won't agree, but I think you will, the truth is difficult. So the easier thing is to just not deal with it. So we may not always be deceitful, but we won't actually be truthful either. It's easier to brush it under the rug, shove it in the closet, and just ignore it than to actually be honest. We are called to be truthful. What are we supposed to do? I think this truth kind of flushes out in a couple ways. I think Paul has in mind that we would speak truth with one another as it regards to Christ. That in our doctrine, we would speak truthfully. That we would be bound up in, in our Lord and Savior. That we would speak the truth about who Jesus is. We would speak the truth with each other about the gospel. We would speak truth with each other about who we are in Christ. That that, that would be a manner in which we engage with one another. I mean, after all, uh, earlier up uh, in, in chapter 4, he says, We speak the truth in love, uh, verse 15. Growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So it would seem that if we were to speak the truth, there ought to be some of that like uh, on a, a spiritual, biblical level saying, No, this is the truth. Let's talk about the truth with one another. Be devoted to the truth with one another. But certainly Paul also has in mind that, that we would speak truth with one another in regards to life. That we wouldn't just be, uh, we, we, that we would be actually very careful about not spreading falsehoods. That we wouldn't be so quick to just uh, utter off a, a little white lie and say, ah, it's no big deal. But that we would be, we'd be careful about that. We'd put away falsehood and speak truthfully with each other. But just because we are to do that does not give license to be a jerk, does it? It's not a license to say, I'm just going to say it how I see it, and who cares how it's perceived or, or received by other people. We are called to be uh, tactful in how we do this. You'll notice if we were to jump down to verse 29, 
Paul brings in this, this concept of, of tact, right? If you will, uh, that truth without tact can be, can be really destructive at times. But truth with tact can be very, can very, can be very constructive to a community. Right, where, where it actually spurs us to, to trust one another. It builds this, this concept of trust amongst believers where, where we're seeking the best interest. So verse 29, uh, Paul speaks, now he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And now, literally what he has in mind, the, we think corrupting, and, and you know, we, we, we use the word corrupting, but it's this picture of, of this, just this vile, putrid, rotting talk that would come out of our mouths. So it's not that Paul just has in mind, just be nice with your words. It's much deeper than that. That is, as believers in this community, we would be careful not to, to literally decay one another with the way that we speak. They would be intentional about the words that, that we're bringing into our conversations. This happens in a couple different ways. Number one, I think we ought to be considerate of the intent of our words. What is your purpose that you are trying to accomplish as you interact with another person? I'll give you an example. Uh, this week, uh, one of my boys did something that made me really angry. What happened is not important, um, but in the moment, I was very upset. And he knew that I was upset, and he knew that he had done something wrong. And everything inside of me just wanted to be upset. And I wanted to be very stern with my son. I wanted him to know just how upset dad was about this. The poor kid's already bawling his eyes out. And God put a check in my heart and was like, Jeremy, what are you trying to accomplish here? Are you wanting to... to speak to your son in such a way just so that you can get something off your chest? Just so that you can feel this, like, you can be angry for a minute and, and that's fine? Or, or are you wanting to deal with the issue and actually train up your child? Because in that moment, I could have run with the upset language. I could have lived in the anger for a moment and I could have really tore down my son. But God has this expectation that we say, no, what's, what's the, the intent behind what you're doing? Are, are you trying to tear someone down? Are you trying to just be selfish and get something off your chest so that you may feel better about it in the moment? Or are you dealing in your interactions with other people in a way that you are intent on building them up and constructing them? Now, that's an example with a two-year-old, but we all have examples of that. It may happen with a waitress uh, when you go out to dinner. It may happen with a coworker. It may happen with your boss, your children, your spouse. With the conversations we have with each other, what's your purpose? Are you going to speak something just so that you feel validated, just because it's what you want to say, or are you being intentional in the conversation you're having with the intent of building somebody up, training them? being constructive with your conversation and your words. Proverbs 18, 21, a great reminder for us. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
And Paul is, is telling us, guys, as believers in this new community, we've, we've been given all that instruction, so we ought to be constructive as we interact with one another. That We don't exist to just tear each other down and rip each other apart. Whatever that may be, just our, our ordinary conversations, that we would be edifying in our language. We'd be edifying in the conversations that we have, both those that just happen on the fly and those that we plan. Because isn't that the case? That sometimes a conversation just happens. You're going to have those that happen this morning after church. You're going to be standing around talking and a conversation is just going to happen. How, how are we edifying and being constructive in those conversations? You're going to have it and you have had it where you know you need to talk with somebody about something. The question is, how are you going to go about that? What's my intent? I mean, consider our words carefully. And, and not only the intent of our words, but I think there's a place, as Paul is, is indicating here, that we should consider the effect of our words as well. Now, I recognize uh, that we, we cannot always control right, how our words are going to be perceived by other people or how our words may be received by other people. But I, I think Paul is calling us to a level of discernment here. If you look at our passage, down in verse 29 again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. There's discernment that's involved in, in how we interact and speak with one another. So, uh, in essence, Paul is bringing to mind this, like, know the time and the place for such a conversation. Discern these things, because a, right, a word spoken in the right moment can have great power. can be very effective, but a word spoken in an untimely way can be destructive. Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Having that timely word is important and using uh, that discernment. So uh, if we were to go back to our elementary days when we learned as we're reading things to ask the questions, who, what, where, when, why, how, all that stuff, if we applied that to our, to our concern for the constructiveness of our conversation with the church, how might that impact us? If we were to stop and consider, who are we talking to? Who, who am I talking to? To know Know something of how they may in interpret what I have to say. To know something about their ideals, their, their thoughts, their, how are they going to respond to something like this? How might I impact them? Where are they at? You know the individual. That's going to go a long way in just saying, how am I going to have this conversation with someone? Then you, you go from there and you consider, well, what is it that I need to talk about? If it's just on the fly, maybe there's not a, as big a deal. You're just chatting. Or maybe you have to have a conversation. What is it that we need to talk about? Is it something serious? Is it just something that I thought of that I'd really love to, to throw on their radar? How am I going about this conversation in a way to be constructive and not corruptive? What am I talking about? What's the topic for a conversation? And why are we talking about it? What, what's my purpose? Is it just because I don't like something? Is it, does it involve other people? Is it is something to deal with uh, just them? Is it, what's, what's the reason for this conversation? Who, what, why? And then consider when. You know, we, we joked uh, in talking about this with a uh, small group and stuff that maybe, you know, it's like uh, joking may be great in some circumstances, but an untimely joke is inappropriate. 
right? It may be, it may be good to joke in a small group setting about something, but in a classroom, maybe not as much. And in a service, it may be weird uh, or un, unfit for someone to just stand up and, and blurt something out. Or you could just talk in another, in another setting. Knowing the time and the place, what's, what's the when? When are we going to do this? When is this conversation going to happen? When am I going to talk about this with another individual? And sometimes there's an intentionality that should be brought to that decision beyond just when's the availability. When would be the right time where it would be constructive and not just, not just a, a place to tear somebody down? And then how? Tone matters, doesn't it? You ever have a conversation with someone where it just went the absolute wrong way and then as you iron it out, you're like, man, if you would have said it just a little bit differently, I would have understood it completely different. How are you having the conversation? How are you speaking with your brother and sister in Christ? What's your tone in that? Proverbs 12, 18 reminds us there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Guys, through and through, the scriptures, old to new, there is power in the words that we say. There is significance that we should give concern and thought to it. So Paul says, listen, let no corruptive talk, that in our conversations with one another, we should leave them feeling edified, built up, not torn down and deflated and like, gosh, they just really... How can you engage in such conversations? How can you be part of building up within our church? How are your conversations with your kids this week going to be constructive? By your spouse? Your small group? What are your conversations at your job? How are we constructive in the words and conversations that we have with one another. Paul says this, that model Christians, if you will, if we were to be modeling Christ, if we were to be living as model believers, we ought to govern our tongues and guide our conversations to be constructive. That we don't just wait and see what happens, but there is intentionality that goes behind it. Now, inevitably, we will wrong one another, and we will be wronged by one another. Uh, Proverbs 10.19 says that when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, right? The more we talk, the more likely it is that we're going to wrong somebody. The question is, where do we, do, where do we go with that, and what do we do in those circumstances? When we've been wronged, what do we do when we've wronged? And Paul says, if we were to go back to verse 26 in our passage, that, that, that Christians ought to work towards resolution rather than just sitting in resentment. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You'll notice Paul doesn't just condemn anger flat out, but he says, be angry and do not sin. He calls for us to deal with anger appropriately, that we don't just fly off the handle. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. 
Do you have control over your temper? Do you have control over your anger? Or or are you losing your cool with people? Because the smallest thing sets you off, and who knows what you're going to say in that moment because you're just angry, and you're going to live in the anger, and you're going to let other people know just how angry you are. Or are you going to, with wisdom, hold it back? I am angry, but I'm going to be composed. I'm going to have control over my anger. Because in this new person, brother and sister, you are not a slave to your passions. You are not a slave to your emotions any longer. You've been given victory over that and the victory of Christ and in his power. So be angry and do not sin. Because you're going to get angry in life. It's going to happen. Even God gets angry. But what do you do with that? And so uh, one question we could bring to, to the table is, how do you bring the scriptures to bear on your anger? How do you bring the scriptures to bear on your anger? Now, one way that you may do that, and sometimes people will do, is we'll go to the scriptures to try to justify our anger. Say, I'm angry about something, so I'm going to go and see what God has to say to see if there's some way that's like he would be telling me, yeah, you're right to be angry about this so that I can, I can feel justified. Like, I can be angry on this. Another way to uh, use the scriptures is to say, how, how are the scriptures judging my anger? Am I going to, to God's word and saying, okay, Lord, I, I may be dealing with this anger right now, but what do you have to say about it? And, and sometimes God's going to say, you know what? Get over it. It's not that big of a deal, so you need to learn to set that aside. Because we ought to be angry uh, for the things that anger God. And some of the things, if we're honest, that we get angry about are just things that we get angry about. And God may say, listen, it's time to control that. You need to get over your anger. You need to, you need to bring it to submission to Christ. So how are you bringing the scriptures to bear on your anger? Do you, do you tend to use them more to justify or do you use them to judge and, and to bring that and to say, okay, number one, should I be angry about this? Number two, how should I be angry about this? What, what should this lead me to do in response to this? Because anger can be a very good thing. Anger can, can lead us to oppose the things that God is opposed to. It can lead us to act and, and bring resolution to the very things that God hates. In which anger is good, because if, if we were left in a place where we were just indifferent to the injustices that God has about, then what value is there in that? But anger can also be dangerous. Or if we let it run out of control, it can, it can destroy relationships. It can destroy people in its path. It can be a very dangerous thing for us. It's, it's kind of like fire. We, we talk about uh, keeping the fire in the fireplace sometimes. There's a, there's a place for that. It kind of is like anger as well. Fire can be very constructive. It can be used for heat. It can be used for cooking. It can be used for survival. It can be good. But fire that runs out of control can be absolutely destructive. It can destroy homes. It can destroy entire regions of land when it's left to its own devices. Keep it under control. Keep the fire in the fireplace. Anger can be good when it's brought into subjection and controlled in the power that God has put us in, in us in his spirit. To not just let it run wild, but to know what to do with it. 
to know how to deal with it. And so Paul calls us then, be angry and do not sin. Literally, to, to not be people who give ourselves to a, a brooding and, and festering kind of anger. Or you've been there when you just want to be angry about something. And you'll think about it. And you'll stoke the flame. You'll add kindling to it. You'll get down. You'll blow on it to, to bring that flame up because you want to burn in anger. We all have the moments. But Paul is saying, listen, there's no place for that as believers. Don't let the sun go down your anger. We, we often take that so literally, don't we? I can't go to sleep tonight. Still angry. I think there's a place for that, but even calmly speaking, I think Paul has in mind, don't let your anger just sit. Deal with it. Work towards resolution. Don't just fester in your anger. Don't just brood in your anger. Sometimes that may mean you need to just bring it before the Lord. Say, Lord, I am struggling with the situation. I can't deal with it right now. So would you, would you help me in my anger? Would you, would you guide me in my anger? Sometimes it may mean choosing to not dwell on it in that moment. Say, I can't deal with it right now, so I'm going to choose to not just sit in that anger. Set aside, I'm going to deal with it, but right now I'm not going to let it define where I'm at. I'm not going to be subject to the anger that I'm dealing with. Sometimes it may mean calling somebody up and having a conversation because this needs to happen sooner rather than later. And we do so speaking the truth in love, striving to be constructive and truthful. The last, uh, the last vice, and uh, we got to keep moving, I apologize. I told you, ver- Point one for a little while. Point one for a little while. The last one is uh, sharing versus stealing. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So rather than uh, Christians in our community being known as those who are lazy or cheat their way through life, Paul is saying, listen, we ought to encourage one another to do diligent, hard, honest work. And the the motivation for that, the purpose of doing it, isn't so that we can just build our own little mini kingdoms of all of the wealth that we can accumulate with our hard work. But he says that we should do that so that what? So that we may have something to share with anyone in need. So rather than just uh, living in a way that we might try to take from other people, Paul says that let's, let's turn the whole paradigm upside down and we'll work so that we might actually have something to give to other people. That we would be open-handed and generous with the things that God has blessed us with in our lives. So we are diligent in our work, not just so that we can hoard it to ourselves, but that we can even share with someone when, it may come up, when the need may arise. That addresses all of us, doesn't it? It addresses the, the person who may struggle to want to work. Say, I don't feel like working. I don't want to work hard. Paul's saying, listen, it is good to work. It's, we should have a good theology about work. That we should be committed to working hard and doing Diligent and hard work, whatever our hands may find to do. But it also addresses the person who just loves to work and loves to work and loves to work to get the next deal, to get the next job, to, to just commit themselves to it. And Paul's saying, listen, it's not just about building your kingdom. It's about being faithful to what God has called you to so that you might be a blessing to somebody else in God's kingdom. That we might benefit and bless and minister to each other in all of this. 
So as we look at each of those vices and the virtues, Paul, in those vices, he's saying, listen, these are unbecoming of believers because they're incongruent with who we are now in Christ. That as this corporate body, we are called to unity and we're called to live in these virtues. And just to hit a couple things on our way out, you'll notice back in verse 27, as we live in these things, Paul says it affects our resistance to the enemy. It affects our resistance to the devil. That all of these vices may attack and, and give opportunity to the devil, our, our corruptive language, uh, our, our anger, our, our falsehoods, our, 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 our laziness, or our cheating. All of those may give opportunity to the devil. We tend to lump it only with our anger. But do they not all give opportunity to the enemy around us? And so we need to learn to be thinking of ourselves less as individuals and more corporately as a body, which to the original readers of this letter, they would have understood. Living in a Roman society, uh, they would have been familiar even with how the, the Roman military units would work. And, and there's a, a military tactic that the Romans used that they call it kind of the tortoise, if we were to kind of uh, bring it to today's uh, lingo, in which uh, the soldiers would all, in one unit, put, go shield to shield with one another and shields over their heads where each is responsible for protecting a fellow soldier. That if one soldier falls, there is opportunity that is given to bring destruction and danger and harm, not just to the individual, but to the whole company. And this is the picture that Paul would have in mind as he's talking about this. As we go throughout this life, as we live these things, we give opportunity to the devil in your life. You are not just bringing opportunity against you. You are not just bringing harm against you, but you are opening the door for the enemy to have a foothold in the body of believers. Because it is not just about individuality, it is about the corporate body of the church. That we are one. We are members one of another, Paul says. So our concern is to stand firm, not just for ourselves, but because I've got a brother and I've got a sister standing on each side of me, and it is my duty to them to stand firm. Because we are one and another, and they are thinking the same and also have concern for me. So we leave this individualism behind because Paul is saying, the church, this body of believers, is strongest when we stand together. So we have to re reframe our American Western thinking that it's just, it's just me, it's just my family, and we need brothers and sisters to start thinking it is us as the church. So as we live out this new calling in this community, we resist the devil. It also brings to bear an impact on our reverence for the Holy Spirit. Down in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you want to live in the past, you are not living faithfully to the, to the work that the Spirit is doing in your life right now. Because biblically speaking, contextually, the grieving of the Holy Spirit is frequently tied to man's rebellion to the Spirit. So you want to grieve the Holy Spirit, walk contrary to the, to the Spirit. So as we live in these vices, Paul's saying, that will grieve the Spirit. But don't grieve the Spirit. Rather, hold the Spirit of God in a high reverence because He has sealed you for all eternity so that we might submit to Him, we might honor Him. That even now, as we go throughout this life, we are not merely doing this on our own strength, but we are strengthened by the Spirit. So we submit to and we trust and we rely on the Spirit of God in each avenue that we might not bring grievance upon the Holy Spirit, we might honor Him. We might revere the very Spirit of God who's at work in each of us. 
ultimately working out is the, the last thing, our reflection of Christ, verses 31 and 32, where Paul, in, in quick succession, says, let all bitterness, anger, wrath, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with malice. And in the first reading, I read that, and I'm like, oh, look, Paul, Paul's addressing my character qualities. He's dealing with our character. And, and, and again, as you look at those things, he's, it's not so much just character. It's communal. Are not each of those things emotions and feelings that we may have interrelationally with, with one another? Bitterness towards one another, wrath towards one another, anger, clamor, slander, malice towards other people. There's no room for that. Because he has asked us then in verse 32 to model Christ. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Did Jesus, did God harbor bitterness towards you? Has God harbored resentment towards you? Does he have brooding anger and wrath towards you? Does Jesus slander your name? Is God filled with malice towards you? Is he plotting evil towards you? Of course not. And so what Paul is saying is let's, let's model that relationship that we have with God amongst our relationships with one another. That we would be kind to one another. That we would be tender-hearted with one another. That we would be forgiving towards one another because we have been forgiven. And so we reflect the relationship that we have with God through Christ with one another. It changes the communal aspect of what the church is, who the church is, and how we go about doing life with one another. So all of this to bring to bear that there's a transformation of this community that we live in. This new life that we have is not one in which we just keep going doing our own thing. It is not so individualistic. And Paul says, no, we are, we are bringing the self-centeredness to an end. We are bringing the self-seeking nature of, our, of the culture you lived in to an end. We are being transformed in this together, that now we are members one of another. That's the calling that's been placed on our life. Therefore, therefore, in view of that calling, speak the truth with one another. Therefore, in view of that calling, be angry and do not sin. Therefore, in view of that calling, consider the words that we share with one another. Therefore, in view of that calling, work hard that we may share with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in doing all of this, what are we doing but living worthy of the call that God has placed upon us? It starts here in the body with each of us, arm in arm, as fellow soldiers, brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's live out this new life right here in our midst. It's an awesome privilege to get to be the church with the church. What a great community that God has called us to be part of a blessing that the church is supposed to be. Amen?